Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. In 2016, a wildfire escaped the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It killed 14 people, injured dozens more, and destroyed parts of Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge. A new investigation shows there were missteps in the response. Park officials were not ready to do. They were not used to these types of events. One mistake after another, unfortunately, uh, led to a pretty awful week. Four decades ago, rice seeds from Laos crossed the ocean to California and made their way to a family of Hmong farmers in North Carolina. Lo and behold, the thing germinated, took off, and it almost grew as tall as, you know, as a a full-grown adult. And the Appalachian Trail has been exhaustively hiked, explored, and written about. But it's still got a few secrets left. I found this letter talking about the trail running between Franklin and Floyd counties, and I thought to myself, the Appalachian Trail does not run through there. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Warmer than usual temperatures and long droughts are leading to more frequent wildfires in Appalachia. Add high winds, and you've got a big problem. That's what happened in November 2016 at Chimney Tops in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Those fires eventually spread beyond the park boundaries into the nearby tourist towns of Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. At least 14 people were killed and 190 injured, and more than 14,000 residents and tourists had to be evacuated. Now, a new investigation has revealed that National Park Service officials underestimated the severity of the wildfire and were slow to alert Tennessee officials about the danger. Tyler Whetstone is an investigative reporter at the Knoxville News Sentinel, or Knox News. He joins us to talk about his reporting. So, Tyler, you know, I grew up going to Gatlinburg and the Smokies with my family, and I continue those traditions now, and a lot of folks from Appalachia visit the Smokies and, and Sevier County there. But 2016, you know, is seven years ago. It's been a while. Can you refresh our memory on that 2016 fire and kind of just the basics, what, what happened with it? Yeah, absolutely. You have to remember, for those who were around in 2016, there was an exceptional drought, one of the worst droughts in state history. Uh, the region was in a pretty severe drought into the Carolinas and Virginia, Georgia. And so it was peak fire season anyways, more so than normal. And this wildfire just happened to be in a uh, perfect storm of sorts. Uh, It began Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving in November, 2016. And the park was severely understaffed because of the holiday. You had people who were new to management positions that didn't want to tell people not to take off for the holiday. And then the fire was up high in chimney tops, which is a weird peak in the Smokies. I think when most people think of the Smokies, they think of uh, rolling hills and uh, treetop mountains. Uh, The chimney tops is pretty much the only peak in the park that's uh, rocky. And uh, the fire started way up top. It was in a spot that really couldn't be taken care of, couldn't be fought. And so they let it kind of burn out, and that was the plan, except that it, it didn't. Obviously, the day the fire blew out of the park into Gatlinburg, it had a, uh, a number of things that went wrong outside of just park officials not letting Gatlinburg know what was going on. Uh, you had what's called a mountain wave, which some people may be familiar with, but it's certain times of year, typically in late November, at least in the Smokies, where you have phenomenal winds that will blow through. And we had wind gusts well over 85, 90 miles an hour that Monday, which just blew the fire that had been largely contained um, to the park well outside of the park. And of course, it spread through Gatlinburg, other branches of it spotted fires up through Pigeon Forge outside of Dollywood. At the end of the day, 14 people died, uh, hundreds were injured, and something like 2,000 buildings were destroyed. And Gatlinburg is is sort of an epicenter of tourism there in Sevier County, which is, you know, one of the biggest destinations in Appalachia. And uh, Gatlinburg's been working on rebuilding since, and we'll talk about that in a minute. 
But first, um, you've been looking into the Park Service's initial response to this fire. What gave you the idea for this investigation, and how'd you go about doing it? So I've been writing about the, the wildfire. I was there the night that it happened, at least in Pigeon Forge. You couldn't get into Gatlinburg. Uh, emergency crews wouldn't let you get into Gatlinburg, which is probably a good call. Um, so it's something that I've been working on, on and off, for seven years. Uh, in the last two years, I've really kind of spearheaded our reporting on that and continue to follow a... Uh, a federal lawsuit against the Park Service that victims of the fire filed. About, uh, I don't know, two months ago or so, I got a new set of documents, 1,500 pages or so of, of federal records that we hadn't previously seen uh, from a source. And those records really uh, spawned the effort that you see this last week or so. We rolled off three new stories that uh, hadn't been previously reported. Yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about what y'all found in all those documents. Yeah, so there's really three findings. Uh, the first is early on, the day that the fire broke out of the park, which would have been Monday after Thanksgiving. Early that morning, park officials were caught saying on the radio, a radio transmission that we have dispatch logs of, that the fire could leave the park and go as far as Ski Mountain. And so if you're familiar with Gatlinburg, Ski Mountain is on the far end of town near the park, but it kind of winds its way around the city. And it's where a lot of residents live. It's a lot of where your cabins are that people rent, but a lot of residents live there too. And it would be another three or four hours before park officials let the city know that the fire could leave uh, the park. But they never said Ski Mountain. And city officials thought it would be in one place and we're never given the heads up that it could go to an entirely different place. And that's where most of the deaths occurred, unfortunately. Uh, the second story was we had found that the man in charge of the fire. So you have the park superintendent who was on vacation that week. You have the deputy superintendent and you have a few other people. But the fire management officer, the guy who's in charge of the response and in charge of how the fire is handled. His name is Greg Solansky. And Greg texted on Saturday, so a couple days before it blew out of the park, uh, he had texted another park official saying basically that uh, that the park should be prepared because Monday might get exciting. And Monday, of course, was was not just exciting. It was, it was awful. It ended up being a lot worse than Greg was expecting. And so it calls into question some of the decisions. Uh, the, the park service never had anyone watch the fire overnight any of the five nights that it burned, which experts in wildland fires would tell you is a, is a no, no. You always want to have someone watching the fire just in case it happens that it blows out of the park or grows or just to get an idea of what's going on. And then uh, lastly, we had a, obtained audio recording of park superintendent Cassius cash receiving a call early Sunday morning at uh, 3 AM in the morning, Sunday before the park, before it blew out the next day. And it's a it's a weird call because he he answers the phone and it, it's a, a police dispatch telling him that the fire had grown and it hadn't. Uh, and Cash assumed that it hadn't, but he didn't check with anyone. He just downplayed it and said, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And, and it's a kind of a small thing. But if you're in charge of a park and a fire is reported to have grown tenfold, at least over a couple hours, it's something that you need to check out. And that's what wildland fire experts had told me. It's something that the park officials were not ready to do. They were not used to these types of events, not used to this type of fire, certainly. And uh, just one mistake after another, unfortunately, uh, led to a pretty awful, awful week. So some of your reporting was prompted by this ongoing lawsuit from the fire victims. Where does that lawsuit stand at the moment? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question. It's it's continuing. I guess it was last year a federal judge ruled that it should be tossed out uh, because of what basically amounted to a paperwork issue that we could get into, but I don't want to bore you with. Um, so we tossed the lawsuit out. The, the victims then appealed his decision to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and a three-judge panel unanimously disagreed with the judge in August. And uh, 
jump-started the lawsuit again. So uh, they're in uh, depositions and they'll be doing some discovery and the lawsuit never really uh, made it very far just because of the litigation tactics going back and forth and it just kind of stalls out. So it's still going to be a while. I'm sure there'll still be motions to dismiss and other things that are going to be happening over the next six months to a year, but uh, that's where it's at right now. So at the time we're talking, your investigations are still pretty recent. They've come out in the last couple of weeks, but so far, what response have you heard from folks about this? It goes a couple of different ways. There's some people who will encourage me, obviously, hey, keep going. I was there that night. Uh, it was terrible. Go get them, whatever. Um, you have a lot of people who question our decision to look at park services responsibility in this and they certainly have the probably the most responsibility in this uh, but the city officials didn't handle everything well either uh, city of gatlinburg officials calls for evacuation whether by the city or t- the state which handles evacuation notices there were a lot of things that went wrong that night uh, certainly not all park related uh, so we get some of that uh, and then some people just uh you know it's been seven years they're tired of the stories but i think i would argue and I have argued that you can't write enough, can't learn enough about one of the worst natural disasters in, in state history, that one of the worst fires in the eastern part of the United States in 100 years. So uh, we're going to continue to to dig into it and, and see what we come up with. How have officials with the National Park Service responded to some of these findings? They haven't. And uh, it's to be expected. You have a, a substantial lawsuit against the Park Service still ongoing and their attorneys won't allow them to comment outside of the courtroom basically uh, no reason to put themselves in any sort of position to to do that so it's kind of weird you you spend a month or two or however long on some of these stories and you look for comment or confirmation and it just doesn't it doesn't come so it's it's part of the uh, it's part of the reporting process so here we are 7 years later And we've had a a few wild years in between with the pandemic and uh, trends in the real estate market. What's happened in Gatlinburg and Sevier County, Tennessee, since those fires hit? What's it look like today? I think in most of your listeners who have gone through Gatlinburg since, I think the, the general sense is you don't notice it. You can tell when you look at certain hillsides that burned, you can tell that there's some new tree growth. There's you, you could just tell that there there was a fire, but the town itself, the city itself, has has come back resoundingly. And it's I just saw a report this week which uh, listed it as Sevier County as the number whatever number in, in tourist dollars coming back from the state. It's it consistently leads the state. It's jumped back. The, the receipts and the hotel stays and all that are, are up from where they were before the fire. So things are. As far as economics go, and, and that whole town really resolve, revolves around tourism, obviously, um, it's jumped back and people are back. The park continues to be the most visited national park in the country. It's hardly anything has changed. What else haven't we talked about that's important to, to bring up? I think that the, and this is maybe evident, self-evident, um, and I am guilty of this as well, but you spend so much time looking at blame and who knew what, when, and kind of just the pointing fingers and rightfully so at at officials and people both in the park and in the city who allowed things to, to get out of control. But there is a a real human element to this. And I think that it's, it's good to be reminded that, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had, had to leave, had to move, had to, their houses were burned. Many of them lost their lives. Some of them were injured pretty severely. I just think it's important to to remember that there is, these are people, and uh, it's sad. None of it's uh, none of it's happy, certainly, but it's important. And we'll continue. Knox News and other places will continue to to dig into it. Well, Tyler Whetstone, investigative reporter at the Knoxville News Sentinel, Knox News. Thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Happy to do it. Thank you, guys. We'll link Tyler Whetstone's reporting on our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, 
The journey of sweet sticky rice from the patties of Southeast Asia to the mountains of North Carolina. Getting it to grow was hard enough, but would customers buy it? I knew it was going to be tough to start out with because people didn't know what you have, so it's a tough sell. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. When you think of rice, you might not think of Western North Carolina. But the area is home to several varieties of heirloom rice that made their way here from Laos nearly five decades ago. The rice was carried and cultivated by Hmong refugees who were displaced by war. One family is now selling their rice at markets and to restaurants, and they've built a passionate following. Folkways reporter Rachel Moore has this story. On a chilly October morning at the Asheville City Market, there's a line in front of two Lee's stall. It's 15 minutes before the market officially opens, but customers have lined up to snag bags of fresh rice. Good morning, how are you, buddy? Good. Do you have any rice? I've got two varieties, a little bit of each. This is a sweet, sticky rice. Uh, sweet, sticky rice is well known. The red rice has got a very nice chestnut kind of oh, taste to it. It's not sticky. It is semi-sticky. Semi? Yeah. Okay, I prefer that. Yep. All right, so I'll do that. Tu and his wife, Chu, are the owners of Lee's One Fortune Farm in Morganton, North Carolina. Each of the four rice varieties they grow are distinct. Take their sweet, sticky rice, for example. The sweet, sticky rice has a very nice kind of a honey, sugarcane aroma, a subtle freshness that is hard to, to explain. Yeah, you have to experience and smell it for yourself to understand. When people ask about a wonderful uh, fresh loaf of bread that you bake and comes straight out of the oven. The sweet sticky rice is probably their most special variety. It has an almost mythological beginning here in North Carolina. It all started with just a handful of seeds passed down through a network of Hmong farmers. Someone visited Laos back in the 80s after they came to the United States. They were able to visit their families and acquired a few, few, I mean, not even ounces worth of seed. I would say no more than maybe 40, 50 seeds. The seed made its way across the ocean into a Hmong community in California. It, it grew, but it didn't grow well. So the people in California sent some seeds to friends in North Carolina to see if their luck was any better. Lo and behold, the thing germinated, took off, and it almost grew as tall as the, you know, as a, a full-grown adult. The Lees eventually got some of the seeds, and they've been growing it ever since. Two says that after nearly 40 years in North Carolina, the rice has completely adapted to this area. It started off as an heirloom from Laos, but as many years as it's been here in western North Carolina, it might as well be considered heirloom in the western North Carolina area. Although the rice is adapted to western North Carolina, it still requires a lot of work. Two and Choose Farm in Morganton is a testament to the work they're willing to do to carry on tradition. Like many Hmong refugees who were displaced by war in Laos, Tu and Chu arrived in the United States about 40 years ago. They've made it a goal to stay connected to their Hmong heritage, and growing rice is an important part of that. The Lees had to establish their rice field in a low-lying area. Tu drives us down a steep, rocky road to get to the field. It's about a mile from the rest of the farm. It's not that bad of a walk, but remember, it's one mile down and uh, 10 miles back. Each year, the Lees have to flood the field before processing the rice. The rice doesn't grow in a traditional paddy, 
but it does require about 8 to 10 inches of water to help control the weeds. It is a tremendous amount of work. And that's not to mention saving the seeds, which has to be done completely by hand. When the rice starts to mature, we actually go in there with buckets or bags and we walk around, hand select the most plump, the most well-defined rice uh, that's on the, on the stock. And we hand uh, harvest those just for, just for seed. Over the years, Two and Chu started using machines to help them with the planting, harvesting, and hulling. Tools like a combine or a rice hauler allow them to keep up with their growing demand. Today, Tu, Chu, and his aunt are drying and hulling some of their sticky rice. Hulling the rice removes its outer layer, so you're left with just the grain itself. It's what makes the rice edible. First, Tu's aunt scoops the rice into a pot of water heated by a wood stove. She skims off any debris that was brought in from the field when it was harvested. Then the rice is strained and Chu toasts it in a giant wok to start the drying process. There's a warm, nutty aroma in the air, almost like barley. So what I'm doing is stirring so that it won't get stuck on the bottom or burnt. You hear the little popping, that means the rice is getting toast. The last step before hulling is letting the rice dry in huge tarps. After Two runs the rice through his hulling machine, it's ready to cook. Aside from the hulling machine, the Lees process rice pretty much the same way their families did while they were growing up in Laos. Growing rice may have its challenges, but Two says it's important to keep doing. The rice is something that brings our families back to remembering what our culture was in the old country and how we want to continue our culture here. The rice is also an important piece of the Hmong New Year, a huge annual celebration that Tu says is similar to Thanksgiving in the U.S. It's a highlight of each year. In fact, the rice harvest is an important lead-up to the New Year celebrations. Tu says Hmong farmers often time the rice harvest so they can be sure to have fresh new rice to share. During the New Year, families from near and far come together. It might be the only time you get to see someone all year, so you have to make it count. When the family gather, you got this fresh new rice. You cook that, and that is a means of uh, making, uh, making something that the whole family can enjoy together. And because the new year is so close to Thanksgiving, it means that Hmong families like Tu and Chu's can often celebrate both holidays at once. Blending cultures like this is just another way the Lees have adapted to make Western North Carolina their home. Now that they've been selling their produce and rice for almost a decade, they can look back on how far they've come and the impact they've had in sharing their culture with others. Growing and selling produce that isn't common around here can be hard after all. Tu says when they started going to farmer's markets, not many people knew what they offered. I knew it was going to be tough to start out with because people didn't know what you have. So it's a tough sell, and uh, we knew it was going to take a long time to develop it, and it did. So he takes it upon himself to educate people and help spread the word. He teaches people how to use produce and will throw in Hmong recipes that they can try. Think young, sticky green rice with succulent Hmong sausage, stuffed bitter melon, or charcoal roasted Japanese sweet potatoes. Two says their customers have learned to treat the rice with respect. They know how special it is. You can see this in action at the farmer's market each week. Have you bought the rice before? Yeah. Okay, good. So you know how to treat it? Put yeah. it in the refrigerator? Not blue. Yeah, I put it in the freezer and use it all year. I gave away all the rest of my dried rice. <laughs> it's not even edible anymore as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes, Just, I look um, forward to it every year. I get as much in my freezer as I can. There are people who come back year after year for the rice. And there are newcomers who are excited for a new experience. Tu and Chu were one of many Hmong families who were able to make rice thrive in western North Carolina and the community has shown they're willing to support it. The rice just seems to be in its home. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Rachel Moore in Morganton, North Carolina. That story was part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. You can find dozens more Folkways stories at our website, 
wvpublic.org. Human trafficking can be an almost invisible crime. It persists because most of us don't know what to look for or what to notice. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas spoke with West Virginia law enforcement officials about how to spot human trafficking. A warning, some of the topics in this story may be difficult for some listeners. It is probable that many of us have encountered a person who is being trafficked and we just didn't realize it. That's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing young girls being kidnapped off the streets of West Virginia and being shipped overseas. Uh, unfortunately, crime's happening right here in our backyard. That was William Thompson. He's the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of West Virginia. He says teachers, faith, and other group leaders can be on the lookout for young people caught up in human trafficking. One is watch for absences like on Fridays and Mondays for like long weekends. Uh, also watch for all of a sudden a person comes in with a new expensive phone or toy or, or something that doesn't quite fit. Um, to watch uh, tattoos. Uh, unfortunately, mm. some uh, human traffickers want to use tattoos as a way of keeping track, for lack of a better term. Look for them to have a, a person to have a significantly older boyfriend or female companion, someone. It just doesn't make sense. Thompson said the weekend absences may mean the young people may be taken elsewhere for sex work. We're, because of our location, if you think about it, you know, six to eight hours in a car, you can be within probably 50 percent of the United States population. We're not that far from a lot of major metropolitan areas. Right. So a lot of them are being used on the weekends where they're being trafficked uh, to and from, you know, Columbus, Detroit, New York, some of the same places where we get illegal other bad things coming <laughs> to us. William Elenfeld is Thompson's counterpart. He is the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of the state. He explained that whether it is labor trafficking or sex trafficking, victims are isolated from anyone who can help. I mean, basically they're cut off from communication with anyone that might be able to, to help them. Um, so they're not necessarily being moved from place to place when it comes to labor trafficking, although that's possible. Um, and then, you know, with sex trafficking, um, it's... Uh, situations where police officers might think it was just a prostitution ring, but in many instances, the, um, the, the females who are involved um, are victims, and they are being forced to engage in this, this type of activity uh, by the, the person who uh, is, is in control of the situation. According to Elenfeld, often these are vulnerable people. They might be a runaway. They may have suffered some sort of trauma in their life, or they might have a substance abuse problem. And it is often a member of the family committing the crime. It's not something that is always obvious. Uh, I've heard it referred to as an invisible crime because it's very difficult to, to see. Uh, and, but that's where trainings come in. Um, I, I think all new officers should be trained in how to identify human trafficking. There are various in-person seminars and resources of information on places like the Handle with Care WV website that provide information on what to look for. One way law enforcement becomes aware of the problem is when traffickers begin exchanging images or electronic messages. The reason that we came on to the case that I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, was because of images that were being exchanged between the uh, the mother of our victim and the uh, another person involved in the conspiracy. Uh, that that that's you know they, they were sending explicit images over the internet uh, and, and they were identified through um, various platforms as being pornographic and and that's how we were able to begin to look into this person who was involved in uh, illicit sexual activity with minors because of the nature of these crimes. The West Virginia Fusion Center, a data clearinghouse for law enforcement, has set up a human trafficking program. Samantha Dowles is the human trafficking intelligence analyst for the Fusion Center. So I use different softwares and resources available to me at the Fusion Center to look through different platforms, look through different areas that traffickers may be utilizing to exploit their victims. 
And through that, I will look for red flags and different things that may lead me to believe that they are a potential victim or a potential trafficker. Donalds has a master's degree in criminal justice. She says she compiles the information and presents what she finds to Homeland Security. So when I do find a potential victim or a potential trafficker, we are very closely partnered with Homeland Security Investigations in West Virginia. So I will put together a lead is what we call it, and it's a report. And I will take that information that I can gather and send that to Homeland Security Investigations here in Charleston. And we kind of put our heads together and they will open a case on whatever information I found if they find that viable. There are state and federal statutes against human trafficking, but often it falls to the U.S. attorneys to prosecute it. For Thompson, that's a good thing. We have the resources more so at the federal level. Uh, you know, I come from the state level. I was a former state court judge for 15 years. I have saw a lot of it. Uh, and some of it is prosecuted at the state level. We have the resources uh, and our sentences are harsher on the federal level. So if, uh, and this is one where I'm very glad they're harsher on the federal level, that it's good for us to get involved if we can. Like most crimes, prosecution of human trafficking can take a long time. It may be hard to find evidence, and witnesses and victims may be reluctant to come forward to testify. It takes a team effort of investigators, prosecutors, and victim support staff to bring it all together. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. Appalachia is one of the most biodiverse regions in the world, and its amphibians are a big part of that, like salamanders. My kids love catching red Fs every spring. But have you ever heard of a West Virginia spring salamander? They're a species found in the General Davis Cave in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. Biologists think there may be as many as 300 of them in the system of caves, but that may be a generous estimate. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wants to put the West Virginia spring salamander on the endangered species list. Curtis Tate spoke with Will Harlan, a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. Your organization says there are fewer than 300 spring salamanders left, all of them in Greenbrier County. Yes, and, and that's, a, that's a generous estimate. They only exist in this single cave system with this single stream flowing through it. And despite the critical habitat protections that this new listing will provide, they only provide to the subsurface habitat of this species. Above it is all private land. And unfortunately, there is logging and pond construction that will threaten this stream and, and its habit and, and the underground habitat. So uh still uh the species will, will still face some threats, even with this protection. What can be done about it? Is a conservation easement possible? Yes. So there are certainly some steps that, that can be taken. And it's still early. This is just the proposed rule. Then the final rule has to be issued. Uh, and, and then there'll be more specifics that follow. Hopefully, the, the listing will encourage the private landowner to work with the Fish and Wildlife Service, the private landowners uh, surrounding this, this habitat, to adopt habitat conservation plans that will mitigate the impacts to the species. That's essentially what happens uh, is private landowners are asked to voluntarily make mitigation, take mitigation measures to reduce their impact to this species. Now, ultimately, Fish and Wildlife Service can be more strong-armed, but they prefer to uh, work with landowners to try to come up with voluntary measures to reduce their impact on, on endangered species. How does the spring salamander rank among endangered species? I would say this is one of the more endangered species in the country with such a small population and only a single uh, location remaining. It is incredibly vulnerable. Uh, to extinction and with no public lands 
surrounding it. it it's essentially dependent on private landowners to do the right thing at this point. And that makes it uh, an incredibly precarious position. So I would say this is among the most endangered species in the country. Thankfully, Fish and Wildlife Service has stepped in and uh, provided not just endangered species status, but also critical habitat, which ensures that its essential habitat is permanently protected and every possible measure is taken to ensure that upstream impacts uh, are minimized. So it has now a fighting chance. Are other types of salamanders facing the same threats? Unfortunately, yes, uh, they're facing many of the same threats, but salamanders occupy a wide variety of niches, a, a wide variety of habitats. So some salamanders face different threats than others, but they all face some, some common themes uh, in terms of threats. Uh, I think industrial logging, industrial mining, uh, dams and uh, development, uh, dilution of water quality, water pollution, I think are, are kind of some of the common threats. But I'll mention some other salamanders in West Virginia that are, are also on the brink that we're also awaiting a listing decision for. It could come any day. We, we were told it was supposed to come this month, so it could be within the next week. Uh, the yellow-spotted woodland salamander, Plethodon polii, almost a completely different habitat than the the cave salamander, but but some similar overlap too. So this salamander only exists in the shale and sandstone outcrops that are also targeted by mountaintop removal mining. So this salamander uh, hides in the crevices of, of these outcrops. There's only 21 populations left. Most of them are only of a couple, a single or a couple individuals. Only uh, 65 of these salamanders have been seen in the last 20 years. So they're, they're barely hanging on. And mountaintop removal mining is targeting the same habitat where they live. So uh, that, that's an existential threat to this species. And we anticipate them being uh, a finding coming from Fish and Wildlife Service that they are warranted for listing hopefully this month. But but uh, there's also the Cheat Mountain salamander, which only exists uh, in the Cheat Mountain region of West Virginia. And these salamanders don't have lungs, and they hide in the on the forest floor. Essentially, they need moist, cool, damp habitat. And if those forests are logged, or drought, or uh, um, other factors dry out their habitat, uh, they're toast. So. They, they need these cool, moist habitats that Appalachia has historically uh, provided. All of our uh, our water, the, 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 the number of rivers and streams flowing through the region and the dense canopies historically have provided perfect habitat for salamanders. This is the salamander capital of the world. Appalachia is home to more species of salamander than anywhere else on the planet. But because of what we're doing to that habitat, uh, we're, we're jeopardizing a lot of these species. That was Will Harlan of the Center for Biological Diversity, speaking with Curtis Tate. The Appalachian Trail was completed in 1927. For 25 years, hikers took to the trail and traveled along the mountains from Georgia to Maine. And in fact, it ran really close to my house here in Floyd County, Virginia. But then the trail was moved. And the old trail was nearly forgotten. Historian and podcaster Mills Kelly discovered the old trail and wrote about it in his new book, Virginia's Lost Appalachian Trail. WMRA's Chris Boros spoke to Kelly about rediscovering the trail. I just remember thinking it was really hard because I was hiking with a bunch of older boys who had much longer legs than me. But that's one memory. And the second was I was just so excited to be out on this trail. At the time, I didn't know that it went from Maine to Georgia, but I was just excited to be out backpacking. When did you discover that there was this lost trail, and why did you want to write about it? So I discovered it in 2018. I was working in the archives of the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, and I found this letter from 1929 talking about the trail running between Franklin and Floyd counties. And I thought to myself, the Appalachian Trail does not run through there. Hmm. 
what is this all about? And of course, as a historian, when you see something that doesn't make any sense, then you have to find out more about it. So I just kept poking around in the archives and found more and more about it. And I realized this is a story I want to tell. It seems like this story hasn't been told before. How did this get lost? So in 1952 was the last year that the trail went through that part of southwestern Virginia, and and then it was essentially written out of all the trail guides because Mm. they had to have trail guides for the current route, which was completely different. And so it just kind of vanished as a result. You know, the trail clubs lost interest in it because they weren't responsible for it anymore. Hikers stopped hiking on it because it wasn't the official Appalachian Trail anymore. And so it just kind of vanished away. Uh, but not for the people who live in Southwest Virginia. For them, it's still very much a part of their lives. So this lost trail is still there to some extent? West of the New River, the Iron Mountain Trail is the old Appalachian Trail. So you can hike more than half of it just by hiking the, the Iron Mountain Trail. On the east side of the river, it's just like little choppy bits and pieces here and there. And why was the decision made to move it to begin with? So there are a couple of reasons. Um, One is that the Appalachian Trail is maintained entirely by volunteer clubs. And it was during the Great Depression, it was really hard to get a volunteer club to stick in southwestern Virginia. You know, people were just trying to survive, much less uh, work on a trail. And and also, it's a very unpopulated part of the state. Um, Galax was the biggest city at the time, and it probably only had about 1,500 people in it. So there wasn't a you know a large base of people to draw from to take care of the trail. So that was one problem. And then there was an opportunity, which was that the Jefferson National Forest expanded dramatically in the 1930s. And, and so there was this possibility of moving the trail into the National Forest and getting federal protection for the route. What? landmarks or interesting sites are on that original trail that maybe people aren't seeing uh, as much of as they would have if it hadn't hadn't been moved? They miss out on a lot, I'll just be honest. (laughs) Uh, So on the east side of the New River, there's Bent Mountain Falls, which is the uh, second highest waterfall in the state of Virginia. It's more of a cascade than a waterfall. You know, it goes down in various sections, but it's still really beautiful. The the trail ran along the escarpment that is the, the edge of the Great Plateau of southwest Virginia. So all along that escarpment, you get these spectacular views out over the Piedmont, and it's just really, really beautiful. And then also, there's the Dan River Gorge, which is the most amazing part of the whole route. Um, it's the headwaters of the Dan River, and right smack dab in the middle of that gorge is the Pinnacles of Dan. And it's this kind of pyramid-shaped mountain that just rises up out of the middle of this gorge, and the trail went up one side and to the pinnacle and then down the other and is really an amazing hike. Do you think that it was a good idea that they moved the trail or should they have kept it? In the end, I have to say it was probably the right choice because getting federal protection for the trail at the time was really important. Um, you know, after the Second World War, people started buying up more and more mountain land to build vacation homes and ski resorts and, you know, lots of other things. And so moving the trail onto federally protected land was definitely the right choice. You, know, you you miss out on a lot as a result, but in this case, I think it was a really good choice. Have you discussed the Lost Trail on your podcast, The Green Tunnel? And talk about the podcast a little bit. Sure. So, yeah, we have a whole episode um, uh, about the Lost Trail um, on The Green Tunnel podcast. And so our podcast, which is about halfway through its third season, is um, a podcast on the history of the Appalachian Trail. And we discuss everything from the founding of the trail to things like the Lost Trail to um, specific iconic locations along the trail, um, you know, really spectacular spots or places that are really popular with hikers. Um, and then we, I think one of our best episodes is the Crapalation Trail, which is a history of the privies all along the trail, because every trail shelter has a privy. And so, you know, everything has a history, even the privies. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've got to laugh. Crapalation Trail. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great title. I can't claim it. Oh. Um, my friend Sarah Jones Decker down in North Carolina, that's her title. But um so it's uh, we borrowed it from her. I actually had to stop for a second and go, did he really just say that? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's a great episode. If someone is intimidated about walking the whole Appalachian Trail, what would you say to them? And is there a small section here in the Valley or in Virginia somewhere where we can access it for a couple hours? Yeah. yeah. So, well, first of all, it's actually not that hard to walk 
the entire trail. You just put your left foot in front of your right foot and then your right foot in front of your left foot. And you repeat that about 5 million times yeah. and you're there. But I don't recommend that strategy. It's not a great life strategy. Um, instead, I would recommend starting with a day hike mm. and um, and then kind of work your way up to, you know, backpacking over a weekend or something and then maybe a week and see how you like it. But a great day hike, um, not too far from, you know, right just outside the valley is in Linden, Virginia. And um, right where Highway 55 parallels Interstate 66, just, just a little east of Front Royal. And the trailhead right there on Route 55, if you hike north from there, you're on one of the oldest sections of the trail south of the Potomac River. And you go about two and a half miles and you get to the Manassas Gap Shelter, which is one of the original trail shelters built in the 1930s by the Civilian Conservation Corps hmm. and now maintained lovingly by me. And, um, and, and then you have had lunch at the shelter at the picnic table and then you turn around and hike back down to your car and it's uphill to get to the shelter, but not, not brutal uphill at all. And then you have the advantage of walking downhill the whole way back. What makes the trail so special to you? And why do you keep coming back? It's special, I would say, for two reasons. Um, one of those has just been part of the fabric of my life. And so it's, you know, it's just part of who I am is spending time out hiking and in particular on the Appalachian Trail. So I just feel at home there. But also, I just love the history of the trail because it is, it's approaching its centennial in just a couple of years. And there's just so much history tied up in the trail. And I'm a historian. And so that part really appeals to me also. That was WMRA's Chris Boros, speaking with author, historian, and hiker Mills Kelly. His new book is Virginia's Lost Appalachian Trail, from Arcadia Publishing. Kelly also hosts a podcast. It's called The Green Tunnel. A little earlier, we talked about the vast array of salamanders in Appalachia. Well, there are an awful lot of fish here in the region, too. Bass, bluegills, and brook trout. But a new book by fisheries research scientist and WVU professor Stuart Welsh spotlights some of the lesser-known fish in central Appalachia. Bill Lynch spoke with Welsh about his book, Horny Heads, Mad Toms, and Darters. Let's talk about horny heads, mad toms, and darters. Can I maybe describe what a horny head or a mad tom or a darter is? Yeah, so a horny head is a is a name for a group of minnows, and these are minnows that the males develop these little pointed horns on their head during the spawning season. They develop these horns, they grow these horns, and they use them to spar. They compete for females during the spawning season. In some ways, it's similar to a white-tailed deer with antlers in that, you know, a deer grows its antlers and then loses the antlers uh, after their breeding season. And it's same situation with these horny head minnows. They they grow these bumps on their head, they use them during the breeding season, and then they uh, and then they're lost afterwards and then they regrow them the following year. Uh and mad toms, what are they like? And mad toms are uh, it's a it's a name for a group of catfish. And most people when you hear the word catfish, you think of big fish like uh channel catfish, blue catfish, flathead catfish, but mad toms are a group of catfishes that do not get very large. Um, Their maximum size, depending on the species, may range from three to six inches in length. Most people don't see them because it's not a fish that you would often catch on hook and line, but we have quite a few different species of mad toms in the Appalachians, and um, they're very interesting little fish and uh, certainly worth telling a story about. One thing I wanted to do with the book was to, you know, tell stories about these small fish so people can maybe understand them better and get to know them a little bit better. You're an ichthyologist, is that correct? That's correct. When, where, how did you first start taking interest in fish? Uh, I think it was when I was uh, a young kid, you know, I really enjoyed fishing. And so I spent a lot of time uh, in creeks and, you know, not necessarily fishing all the time, but flipping rocks and looking for crayfish and, and aquatic salamanders and various critters. And I think uh, that uh, focus uh, at an early age kind of uh, sparked my interest and and I was able to keep it going into a career. Kicking over rocks and fishing is one thing, but academic study of this, what kind of path is that? Well, it's a long, tedious path, I guess you would say, but, you know, it requires a lot of uh, 
postgraduate work. I got a, a BS degree, you know, at West Virginia University. And then I went on to get a master's degree at Frostburg State in fisheries management. And then uh, I came back to West Virginia University for a, for a PhD where I was focused on, on fisheries work. How diverse are, I guess, is the fish population in central Appalachia? You know, we have a, a lot of different kinds of fish. And for example, in West Virginia alone, which is certainly the heart of Appalachia, central Appalachia, we have a list of species. It's uh, 195. So there's a lot of different kinds of, of fishes that we have. And, and you know, people are real familiar with the common ones, especially ones that you catch on rod and reel. But the smaller ones, uh, a lot of people don't know about them very much. And so I think that's one of the uh, opportunities for a book like this is to provide information about those fish to, to let people learn a little bit more about them. Talk about the book and putting it together. It's a collection of stories on on Central Appalachian fishes, and and there are stories on some familiar fish, um, you know, like the native brook trout, the smallmouth bass, the bluegill sunfish. But then there's also several stories on uh, fishes that are that people know less about, such as in the title, horny heads, mad toms, and darters. And also, um, there's some fishes that are unusual that are discussed, like, uh, for example, uh, uh, the lampreys, which are a group of fishes that are pretty small, but they they have kind of an eel-like body. Then you've got a fish called the trout perch that I talk about, which is a really fascinating little fish of central Appalachia. How did you, I guess, narrow it down into which fish you wanted, to, I guess, to deal with? Yeah, that was a challenge because I find all the fishes that we have to be fascinating and interesting and worthy of a story. But um, I tried to just focus on some of the fishes that I thought would make the most interesting stories, because what I wanted to do was to write stories that would be both educational, but also interesting for a wide audience. And so I, I tried to select fishes that had an interesting story to be told. Often that was related to a certain type of behavior. It may be to a certain type of feeding strategy, a certain type of spawning strategy. It was typically some aspect of that fish that I thought was interesting that I emphasized in the story. What do you hope an average reader takes away from your book? What I would hope is that people would realize that uh, Central Appalachians have a diversity of fishes, that there's a lot to be learned. You know, often when you know more about something, you care about it more. And I and my hope in the end is that the book will increase the conservation of fishes in the central Appalachians by making people more aware of the diversity that we have. Uh, the book is called Horny Heads, Mad Toms, and Darters. Stuart Welsh, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Horny Heads, Mad Toms, and Darters is available from Ohio University Press. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by David Mayfield, Chris Knight, John Blissard, John Ingram, Eric Vincent Huey, and Steve Earle. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.